Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So you're back safe. No one was eaten by alligators. We didn't even see an alligator aside from one on the Jungle Cruise. But I checked and every beach at Disney Resort is fenced off so that no more little kids get eaten by alligators. Disney World is just one big happy place where everyone is friendly. We had a ball. Well, it's time to have a ball here. It's this week in the CLE, the podcast discussion of the news by the reporters and editors at Cleveland.com. We get together each week to debate, analyze, and crack wise about the goings-on in Northeast Ohio. I'm Cleveland.com editor Chris Quinn, here with my co-host, Laura Johnston, who hit the ground running upon her return to Ohio with the fascinating tale of Jane Fonda's bogus arrest in Cleveland 50 years ago this year. It's good to be back. The Jane Fonda thing came up because Fonda is returning to Kent State for another 50th anniversary of the May 4th shootings. And while I knew Fonda had protested the Vietnam War, I had never heard of this Cleveland arrest. So this was before she became controversial, right? Her trip to Vietnam came later. So was the nation shocked that this young actress was arrested in in this fashion? Did Cleveland know who she was? Yeah, they did. And I think she was on the beginnings to being controversial. This happened at the beginning of a speaking tour um, against the Vietnam War. And she was accused of smuggling drugs in from Canada after she flew into Hopkins after one of her anti-war speeches. Um They were actually vitamins, and Fonda claims her arrest was a directive straight from the Nixon White House. She spent like 10 hours in the Cleveland jail. Charges were eventually dropped. But meanwhile, her shaggy dark hairstyle, which she had for the movie Clute, for which she later won an Oscar, became this huge trend. And her uh, mugshot, where she has her fist raised, became iconic. Yeah, those are cool pictures. I'm I'm glad we got a hold of them. Uh, And now she's coming back to Northeast Ohio. Yes, she'll be a featured speaker during the weekend of events marking the 50th anniversary of the Kent State shootings. What episode of this podcast will be complete without a reference by Laura to Lake Erie? So, Laura, why is Lake Erie in the news this week other than the lake effect snow it is dumping all over us? Well, we're hitting record high water levels again. In January, we were seven inches above where we were last January, and we just broke the February record set in 1987. We're supposed to keep bre- breaking monthly records through May, although fo- forecasters right now don't think we're going to break the all-time record, which we set last June. So last year in the summer, when you were writing about that all-time record, we thought that by now the lake would be draining out. We knew it would take a long time. We had some stories about how long it would take to to get the water out of here. We had some fun with Niagara Falls doubling its draining, and Rich Exner played with his numbers. But your story makes it look like we're still not that far away from that record, still nearly three feet above normal. Yeah, at this point, we are 35 inches above normal. We did see the regular cyclical lowering in the fall, but we didn't drop as much as anyone wanted. And so that means like erosion is wrecking the shoreline all over the Great Lakes. A house on Lake Michigan literally fell into the lake. I saw one out of Lake Huron where a hot tub went in. Michigan is estimating $100 million in damages to public infrastructure. And 
that's just the roads and the walkways and stuff. Chicago's trying to figure out how to shore up their lakefront paths. We've actually been pretty fortunate in Cleveland that we are so far above the lake level that we haven't seen any major damage and we have much stronger um, earth in our cliffs that is not washing away quite the same way. You say they're predicting that we won't break the record, but we're not far. I mean, what was it, an inch or something from No, the yeah, we are not far at all. And honestly, it seems hard to believe, like, we're going to break the records through May, but then we're going to stop in June. It all depends on precipitation. We were over uh, the normal precipitation for January in part because it was um, more rain than snow, which I know you love rain over snow, but this is one problem with it. Um, so it, it's, it's going to depend on the lake, on the precipitation in our watershed, but also in the upper lakes and Lake Huron and Lake Michigan just hit January records and they actually hadn't broken records last year. So all that water's got to come into Lake Erie at some point. Yeah, it's fascinating stuff. Okay, it's time to move on. But before we bring in a bunch of people for a roundtable on the China coronavirus, I want to note that those Cleveland ballot questions we've talked about a bunch reducing the size of council, cutting their pay, are officially dead. They are on the ballot because the ballots have been printed, but they will not be counted. Using a not-quite-on-point Supreme Court precedent as authority, the Cuyahoga County Board of Elections have ruled the questions null and void. It's good to bring an end to that controversy, so let's bring in the whole gang. We're squeezing in tight in our little podcast booth today. We have so many people that we have to share a microphone. Welcome to the podcast, politics editor Jane Cahoon, criminal justice editor Chris Warnowski, and reporter Mary Kilpatrick. Hey, hey. Good morning. <laughs> Hello. Sorry, I had to move the mic. <laughs> we brought you all in together because each of you had a piece of the coverage we've been giving to the China coronavirus. The whole world is focused on this virus with lots of worries about it becoming a pandemic. But so far, all the containment efforts seem to be working. That doesn't mean it's not news, though. Jane, let's start with the biggest head scratcher on this. The sudden secrecy with the Ohio Department of Health. Yes, we talked a little bit about this last week where after the... But it got the, worse. It got, <laughs> <laughs> the, the Miami kids who tested negative, after that, you know, we knew some things about them, like they had traveled, et cetera, to China. Well, now they've instituted, the Department of Health has instituted this policy where they only update the public on their website at 2 p.m. on Tuesdays and Thursdays, and it's just bare bones, numbers. So, for instance, last week we had a total of three suspected cases, the two Miami kids who tested negative and one other person who was being tested. Well, suddenly then on Tuesday, there's like five cases, four negative tests and one pending. So it's like, where did these people come from? We we don't know, you know, whether they're young or old, how sick they are, what region of the state, uh, anything male female nothing so it's it's really frustrating and i guess it's not just ohio laura hancock checked and other states are doing the same thing although some states are much more forthcoming like they'll give you the gender or maybe right. the age but she found some experts who say that what ohio is doing is absolutely wrong it is can i ask is was there a reason given for this i mean did they has the state at all explained why they're they're being so secretive about this information all of a sudden? Yes, they really say they are trying to balance the public interest against patient privacy. But we, of course, think they're bending a little too far toward the privacy. Uh, but that that's really the reason that they're giving. 
Uh, but as you said, Chris, these, these experts, you know, one of the things they said is instead of just sharing some preliminary information and saying that it's preliminary, the state is sitting on this information and just breeding more mistrust of, of government and worrying people more, frankly. Like if you said, you know, this is in Meigs County, that one of the people were being tested, then people in Meigs County could make a decision on taking precautions. You know, I, I get it. They don't want to incite the panic. Everybody <laughs> says don't incite the panic. But but at least if you lived in Meigs County, you would know I might have somebody in my midst that has the China coronavirus. They won't even do that. Correct. They won't. Yeah, I, I feel like if they, without giving a, any information, it just makes you wonder and worry what, whether that's good for the public psyche or not. I don't know. One of the experts said, yeah, yeah, you should be able to get provisions or, or whatever kind of precautions you want to take. And they, they seem to be really concerned about, you know, tamping down the panic and worry. But the fact is people are worried. Has anybody asked Mike DeWine about this? Because this really doesn't fit in his way of, of approaching things. He's been pretty progressive. He, he, he hasn't been known for being super secretive really at all. This doesn't fit his style. Has anybody asked him this? Are you signing off he, on this? I don't think we asked him specifically about this. We have certainly asked his spokesman, for instance, when we see these numbers on the website and we have no idea really what they mean, and we get voicemail over at the Ohio Department of Health, he, he, we go to his spokesman who helped us somewhat. But we haven't addressed what, that question. What to did the health department do when Ebola was back under John Kasich? Was John Kasich actually more <laughs> transparent than Mike DeWine? <laughs> oh, you're really testing my memory here. <laughs> I, we actually knew, though, about the Ebola case, and we probably knew, too. Wait, we, we knew her middle name. Um, <laughs> well, but, I mean, it, it's possible that the state took away something from the the panic of Ebola and and said, you know, this is, we're not going to have that happen again. Well, it just, it makes you wonder, too, because they were very specific about Miami University, and they had a the health uh news conference there and then all of a sudden they backed off so i wonder if miami was like look you outed these kids i don't know yeah. uh, you know what's bogus about that though that's basically saying we don't trust people to to respond in a proper fashion so we're going to preclude them from making their judgment by refusing to give them information i mean you know if you feel that way you should take the guns away from them because the whole argument is <laughs> no the whole argument about letting people have guns is responsible people should be allowed to make their decisions so we're going to allow them to have guns because we trust them to have guns but we're not going to trust them to make decisions about whether to take precautions on viruses right Another factor that's been brought up here is let's not stigmatize people who are sick. Mm -hmm. I think they're worried that somebody sneezes in front of you and you're you, you're going to conclude that they've got this virus. Yeah, yeah. That, that this is working, right? Right. <laughs> you're not saying that now. Well, I mean, there have been reports of, of people of Asian descent actually being racially profiled. I think there was a report in New York. People aren't going to Chinatown and, and eating dinner at Chinese restaurants or other Asian restaurants. And so I think, you know, that sort of fear of otherness, um, people's worst traits sort of come out when there is this sort of 
mass hysteria sometimes around a specific illness or specific group of people. But you know how to combat that if you're in New York? Is you go out, if you're the New York Public Health, and you say, hey, we have one case we're testing. It's in Syracuse. New York City is safe. I mean, there's a way of dealing with this and, and getting rid of anxiety. It's the not knowing that makes people anxious. I got to say, I was expecting in Disney World to see people with masks on, and I didn't see a single one. So I don't think there's a lot of mass hysteria yet. But um, Chris, your team sought to answer the question of what Northeast Ohio landscape would look like if we did have an epidemic. And the short answer seemed to be nothing like China. So what did local health experts have to say about the serious lockdown quarantine in China? Well, again, much like the state, I mean, not a whole heck of a lot. <laughs> but, but uh, you know, what we found is that Summit and Cuyahoga County are really sort of taking their cues from the CDC, which I think, you know, a lot of places are. And, and honestly, as a public service, it's probably worth saying, like, the best information about this is probably going to come out of places like the CDC, mm -hmm. the World Health Organization. So anybody here is listening, stay the heck off Facebook, stay out of those groups, <laughs> and, and please, for the love of God, you know, go to trusted sources like of information for this. Com. And like us, yes. <laughs> but, but, you know, in, in reality, I think when people, when you start hearing the words pandemic being tossed around in the media and the news, you know, people have this vision of, you know, detention camps and, and terrifying, you know, movies like Outbreak and stuff like that. And, and, you know, we have a very different system of government than China, and we have a very different way of, of dealing with this. And, and, the, and the folks that we talked to basically said, like, the images that you're seeing coming out of China of, of mass quarantine are not something that you're going to see in America. I, I have to be honest. I think this country is, you know, with our rights and our freedoms and, you know, and being heavily armed, I think it would be very difficult to round up a large mass of, of population here and stick them in a camp. I just, I don't think people in this country would accept that. And, and the people that we spoke to also noted that, that, that when, when there have been mass quarantines, I think the last major one was related to smallpox, people get out, you know, people, people in China are finding ways to sort of sneak out of these things. So I, you know, it's the comparison that somebody made is that it's, it's not going to be like, you see on like the walking dead or American horror story. It, it's mostly going to be stay in your home. Don't come into contact with people and you know, they'll quarantine you sort of individually. There is a caveat here though. This is the age of Trump. And even though all the national health experts have a very firm grip on that, the China quarantine is an outdated way of approaching this. And there's a much smarter thing. You do have a president that pretty much does whatever he wants, that there is no rule of law anymore. So if he decided he liked what we did with the Japanese in World War II, he could just decide, you know what, I'm going to quarantine people. And you could actually quickly become what you're seeing in China. Right. Only Democrats. And I think, We're only going to quarantine Democrats. <laughs> right, well, and I think... He's a germaphobe. I believe, I believe he would probably say very bad hombres, but... <laughs> <laughs> that's a deep cut. But the... Uh, but I... But... Yeah, I mean, you do you I mean, you do have to take into consideration our kind of slow slip into pseudo authoritarianism <laughs> that, you know, when 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 in, you know, I mean, but I mean, think about it. There was a very prominent conspiracy theory during the Obama administration where they were rounding they were going to round up citizens and put them in FEMA camps. And it created yeah, such mass outrage that, you know, I, I think that there is a lot of caution being taken in 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 all of the public facing comments about how 
our national and, and state level health organizations are dealing with this. Right. One reason that the virus is so scary is how little we know about it. And this week, a study was published showing some new information about how long you can have it without showing symptoms, possibly up to 24 days. Mary, you did as much comparing as possible of this virus to things that are more familiar, like the flu, the cold, chickenpox. What did you find? Uh, So basically, like you said, the reason why the coronavirus is so scary is we don't know a lot about it, but we can make some comparisons to diseases that you may be more familiar with. So, for instance, it does share some symptoms with the flu, you coughness, fever, uh, coughing, fever, those sorts of things. The other thing that it shares with it is the transmission. Right now, scientists believe that people catch the corona the novel coronavirus in the same way they catch the flu which is coughing and their little droplets of disease in your cough and uh, that's how it spreads but we really don't quite know how it spreads yet and I think that's one of the scary things about it Um, one of the main differences between the coronavirus and the flu the coronavirus has been known to cause these terrible lung infections that we really don't know how to treat Um, The flu doesn't really cause lung lung infections in the same way that the coronavirus does. Um, Another central difference, um, you... Let me, let me ask yeah. you, when you say lung infection, you're talking about a viral infection. It's not a, with yes. the flu, if you get enough irritation, yes. you can get bacterial pneumonia. Yes. Th- but you're, what you're talking about is this virus attacks the lung and yes. makes you, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And so we really don't know how to cure that. And we don't see that as often with the flu. The other thing is, um, like Laura said, um, the incubation period could be between um, three days and 24 days. We That's don't, terrifying. We don't know. <laughs> yeah, we don't know how long, like when in that period of time you could be contagious and not know it. With the flu, it's, you know, we know a lot about the flu. Um, the incubation period for the flu is between one and four days. So pretty soon after you catch the flu, you're gonna be showing symptoms. Usually it's two days after you catch the flu and you're only contagious for one day without knowing you have the flu. So very short time period that you're walking around infecting other people and very short time period that you're walking around, you know, without knowing that you have the flu. Um, With the coronavirus, we really don't know when you're contagious. We really don't know, you know, how long it will take for you to manifest symptoms And then I think there's confusion, too, because the symptoms can be similar to the flu. And so people don't know, especially, you know, in China where these things are are really common, like what you have. And I think the hysteria sort of like there have been reports that people have the flu, but they're panicked because they think they have coronavirus and they're not being able to be treated for their flu because they don't have the coronavirus. And the hospitals are overwhelmed with coronavirus victims and only focusing on coronavirus. So. That's kind of interesting. Well, the, the, the interesting most recent update, I mean, five weeks ago, we were talking about a number of victims in the hundreds, and, and the most recent update is the number in China jumped by 15,000 in, in a clip. So yeah, the uh, threat of a pandemic is still very real. Yeah, the other thing that we know about the flu is we know the mortality rate. It's about a half a percent. We also have a lot more knowledge as far as combating it. We have a vaccine. You know, we have treatment practices that are tested and sometimes can work. I mean, the flu is a tough disease, but we kind of know what we're dealing with. With the coronavirus, there's so many unknowns. We have no idea what we're doing. Right. It was Um, 2% originally. Now there's talk of four and and partly because China is secrecy. So because I'm a maniac for the story and I keep coming up with (laughs) ideas for it, you've all had to do deep thinking on this. 
Um, and I'm curious, now that you've been confronting what this thing faces, have you done anything to get ready? Has anybody laid in extra food or ordered some masks from Amazon? Have you thought about that at all? I mean, my affairs are in order, but <laughs> but I don't know. I, I think, you know, you, you keep an eye on it. You, it, it. you try not to be paranoid about it, but just I always think just be mindful, you know, maybe cover your mouth when you cough. And uh, I, I, right I, I pointed at Laura, Laura, who I sit across from every day. And uh, I normally cough into my elbow. Well, and Mary sneezed the other day in a video, and everybody was all over her because like, she didn't wash immediately your wash her hands. hands. Yeah, I was doing a Facebook Live about uh, coronavirus and happened to sneeze, and and everyone was like, "Get up, go wash your hands." And I'm like, "I'm talking to you all. I'll, I'll do it in a moment." Um, my my central strategy, uh, Seth Richardson, our politics reporter, is a bit of a survivalist. He actually is a very uh, skilled soap maker and has a lot of good woodworking skills. Um, so he informed me actually this this week that he would accept me into his tribe, which would be a dictatorship um, <laughs> if, uh, <laughs> if uh, the apocalypse struck. So, um, We're going to have to ask him about yeah, that later. So I'll, I'll be at Cess. Uh, he's still quizzing me on what skills I can provide. I really have <laughs> none. I, I do have to say, when I was at Disney World, I was really conscious of the hand washing because you're like touching mm -hmm. all these railings and going on the rides and then you're like eating Mickey bars and pretzels. And so like I was big on hand washing because I think uh, I mean the experts tell you that is the number one thing you can do is wash your hands well so my kids were supposed to be singing happy birthday while <laughs> they wash their hands with hot water twice twice and you know what what weird practical advice to have to give to adults <laughs> <laughs> Jane I'm staying home for Valentine's Day and watching a movie okay <laughs> all right guys thank you so much for your time we're gonna keep Jane here for a while to talk about Jim Jordan and some other stories Okay, so Mary and Chris have left, and we're sitting here with Jane. And Jane, speaking of something going viral, dare I say, Jim Jordan. <laughs> we had a story this week about his name coming up yet again in relation to the horrifying sex scandal at Ohio State University. Back when this staunchly conservative congressman from Ohio was a wrestling coach, that story has lit up the uh, Internet. It's the most read thing we've had in a while. What happened? Yeah, Jim Jordan has a way of... Uh you know, attracting all sorts of people here. But uh, what happened was uh, this week in a uh, legislative committee, a guy named Adam DeSabato testified. He's a former OSU wrestler. And uh, this was on the legislation that we talked about last week that would waive the statute of limitations for these victims of Dr. Richard Strauss from the 80s and 90s to sue OSU for ignoring the abuse. And this guy came in and started ripping on Jim Jordan, basically saying he's a liar. He knew about this abuse when he was an assistant wrestling coach there. And not only that, he tried to cover it up. He tried to call him and get him to not come forward, etc. Yeah, he did not mince words. I think no. he used the word liar. Um, and much to Jordan's dismay, this won't go away. Over and over again, his name keeps coming up and he's always being it's always for being complicit for being silent jordan of course says he knew nothing of the abuse so why are these accusations against him so tenacious well part of it is because he's such a polarizing figure and this has taken on such a political tone he's he has such a high profile now as this staunch defender of donald trump during the impeachment 
and he's a bulldog on these various committees. He's he's a founder of the ultra conservative House Freedom Caucus. He's up for re-election this year, and he's always a target. So anytime anything like this comes up, his critics just seize upon it. You know, I, I said the story, Andrew's story, went crazy on our site, and then it's gone through cycles. It was hot on Reddit for a cycle, and it's been hot on Twitter for a cycle. People are sharing it all over the place. But like Laura said, th- this just keeps coming up over and over again. And so far, Jordan seems to have managed has seems to have managed to elude damage. But how many times more can can this not stick? How many people do we have to hear from before before the general consensus is, hey, really, what's going on here? Well, that's that's a good question. I don't know. I I mean, we're there are a lot of people who defend him. You know, he's he established a website to defend himself. He says anybody who knows me, you know, knows that I wouldn't stand for this. I would deal with it if it happens. So it's just a constant back and forth, and I don't know. I have no idea if anything's ever going to stick. So do the accusers have anything to gain by pointing a finger at Jordan? Well, the the guy who did this this week is a plaintiff in one of the lawsuits. So, yes, obviously they, they have money to gain through the case. But I, you know, I can't um, know what anybody's motivation is each time we talk about this gets a little bit harder to buy uh, jordan's claim of ignorance he's in a gerrymandered congressional district so he seems to be safe do we know of anyone lining up against him republican or democrat well there are uh three democrats filed to run against him and that district as you said it's so gerrymandered i mean last time in 2018, he got like 65% of the vote against, you know, a fairly viable candidate. Uh, so do I think he's safe? Yeah, I do. <laughs> Moving on, Washington reporter Sabrina Eaton found something interesting for Cleveland in Donald Trump's new budget proposal. More than $80 million for a new home for the FBI in Cleveland. But they're already in a pretty new building on Lakeside Avenue, right? Correct. This was interesting. Uh, apparently, during the big push for privatization in 2002 under President George W. Bush, uh, you know, they, they entered into a lot of these leases for FBI buildings around the country with these front-loaded, you know, really costly. Uh, it, it's, I think the rent is something like $4.4 million a year for 10 years, and they built in these extra costs for for modernization. So they're now saying, the GSA is now saying that they could save millions by acquiring land and building a new building for themselves. I was pretty stunned by this news because I still think of that building as pretty much brand new, even though it is 18 years old. I was shocked when, when Eric Isaac said that building was opened in 2002. But then I was surprised to learn from Sabrina about that sweetheart lease deal. I mean, they, they calculated into the lease payments, the $10 million in improvements the FBI wanted over 10 years, but then they kept paying that higher lease payment for eight <laughs> right. years. That's more than a million a year. I mean, if you figure in the interest costs, it's probably like a million and a quarter. So do we know who the developer is that was getting this sweetheart set of payments? We've got our best people on that case, Chris. You <laughs> Stay tuned for more information on that. 
So why did the federal government not demand a reduction in rent at the end of the 10 years? This seems like a pretty obvious neglect of taxpayer money. Well, uh, the the lease isn't up yet. It's There's another two years on it. So I don't know... And I don't know if they made an attempt to to lower it or not. Oh, oh, I misunderstood that. So it's so, <laughs> even worse. So, so I'm the FBI. I want ten million in extra extras on the building. We build that into the lease payments to pay it off over ten years. But I sign a lease to keep paying those lease payments for another ten years, even though I'm no, done. No, no. I mean, well, it was signed in two thousand and two, so it's up in. Yeah, but Sabrina Tur- said that that the extra costs were paid by the right. end of ten years. Right. So, but they but they continue to pay. Right. 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 Yeah, man, that that, that that seems like a fishy lease deal to me. A- any idea where they will go? Um, I guess when I'm asking, do they think there's an actual plan for this thing yet, uh, or is this just putting money in a budget to begin the process? That's a good question. I mean, like most things in the budget, it's all. It's just a wish list. It's subject to change. Who knows what's going to happen in Congress on this? So we have a lot of stories about government secrecy on this podcast. Here's one more, kind of. A dark money group has assembled to lobby for Governor Mike DeWine's big package of gun reforms that doesn't, until now, seem to be going anywhere. Right. There is a 501c4 group that formed called Standing by Ohio, and it's dark money because they don't have to report, you know, who's giving them money, who's supporting them. Uh, but we do know some things about them. They, their website is hosted um, by an IP address that's owned by some DeWine allies and so forth. But anyway, they've launched like digital uh, and and direct mailing, I guess, uh, to support DeWine's package of gun bills. All right. So this is odd, right? I mean. What can a dark money campaign do that the governor with his bully pulpit cannot? I mean, it's pretty clear where the divide is here, right? The governor wants to change gun laws. He wants some common sense, and he's come up with some novel approaches that we've talked about in the past. The Republicans in the legislature are all, you know, in the House, they're all up for election again in November. They're afraid of doing anything that could be criticized that's anti-Second Amendment. How does the dark money campaign change anything? Well, I think the hope is that one thing lawmakers do listen to is, you know, when they get calls and emails and and letters from constituents. And this is trying to motivate people to contact their senators, the bills in the Senate now, not really going anywhere at the moment. And so it, if you go to their website, it directs you how to contact your senator and say, we want a bipartisan solution to this. We care about our children, et cetera, et cetera. And um, so I think that's how they're trying to get to the lawmakers. So is it more of a campaign for the hearts and minds of people then? Because if the dark money can win people in Ohio over, then maybe the legislators will get over their fears and take some action. Um, is it dark so that otherwise conservative groups would support the push? Well, I hearts and minds here. I. We've said this before, the, the staunch gun rights supporters in the legislature, you know, they're not likely to be swayed. So I don't think they're winning those hearts and minds. <laughs> okay. We talked a while back about a guy's move to have being a Browns fan be a medical malady qualifying you for medical marijuana. It was fun. We had a lot of laughs about the dismal state of the Browns, but we didn't think it had much of a chance. Now we know. Well, the state medical board, uh, you know, this guy says he was only half serious. And so the state medical board 
didn't take it seriously at all either. They they dispatched it pretty quickly and and uh, went on to. Uh, they are going to give more review to a few other conditions, uh, including autism spectrum disorder, anxiety, and another uh, wasting condition. Okay. One more for you, Jane. Lake Erie wasn't the only thing heading for a record in January. We had a giant wave of gambling, correct? This is correct. Uh, in January, the state's casinos and racinos smashed a, a record for uh, for for the month of January, taking in $167 million after paying the winnings, which is a 19% jump um, over the previous January, which was also a record. That's huge. Any idea why, if we've never had anything kind of like that jump, what explains it? Well, there are a few things that I think factor into it. One is that uh, Friday is a really big business day for for gambling for casinos and racinos and there were five Fridays in January Mm -hmm. it also uh, New Year's Day fell on a Wednesday and so lots of people were off work they kind of had this big long weekend probably weren't going back to work until the following Monday Mm. so maybe they're just like hey let's let's go out and gamble Um, another thing (laughs) happy holidays Another thing that uh, Rich Exner, you know, our numbers guy, mm-hmm. who is who is not only the gambling expert, but he's also our weather expert. Mm-hmm. He notes the weather was good in January. We didn't have a lot of snow, so more people maybe came out. Hmm. All right. Well, thanks for talking with us, Jane. Sure. In a moment, we'll talk about Cuyahoga County Council having a heart. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Welcome to the podcast, Courtney Astolfi. Hello, hello. So we talked in a recent episode about the heartlessness of the Cuyahoga County government. The county discovered it had not deducted enough for health care premiums for public works employees last year. So they were deducting the extra this year and amounted to $20 to $80 a month pay cut for people who don't make a whole lot of money. And I asked you when we talked about it last time whether the county council might step in to help these low paid workers. And now they have. Yeah, council did take up the issue. This week they approved a measure that, you know, retroactively affects the employee's union contract and wipes out the need then to have them make up the difference. It it essentially lowers last year's rate retroactively. How much does it cost taxpayers? 58000 so what does Armin Budish say? He seemed pretty content to take it from the workers. Well, the administration did come out initially and said, we're going to be recovering this throughout the year. But then the council measure came about and Armin signed on as a sponsor, him and in the law department and the public works department. So he got on board with that effort. It was kind of dopey that the Budish team did not do this to begin with or see that this would be controversial and make them look mean. I mean, it's just, it's another one of those things where you say, what were they thinking, Laura? Well, it here's one where we do know where they're thinking. Budish is proposing to give $14 million to Sherwin-Williams as part of the incentive package to keep the paint company headquarters here. It was a big day in Cleveland when Sherwin-Williams announced it would build its headquarters here, and they're building exactly where I hope they would, on Public Square. So what exactly is the county offering? Yeah, so the big county contribution here is a $14 million grant to help with the construction of the downtown facility and the one that's going into suburban Braxville. But there's also a couple little extra things that came out this week in the county's agreement. 
that it's some extra help around the edges. So part of, well, first of all, part of the $14 million construction grant incentive, Sherwin-Williams has to work to keep the 3,500 or so jobs it already has in Cuyahoga County in the county for five years. That's pretty standard. But then these little extras I was talking about, the county has, you know, potentially offered a $2 million redevelopment loan to go towards the redevelopment of Sherwin-Williams' current headquarters, the landmark office towers. Potentially 500000 of that could be forgivable at some mm-hmm. point down the line. Again, these aren't guaranteed. The, the conditions have to be right, and they're contingent on a couple of different things, but the possibilities there. Uh, the county also said it would, you know, work to do unspecified improvements and planning at Cleveland Hopkins International Airport. Now, I, I believe there has been a master kind of planning process that we've been aware of going out there, so it could work into that, but they didn't really detail what the airport improvements might be. Flights to other cities. That's what it needs. <laughs> I mean, I feel like that's the basic point of an airport right? right people would go through a tent if they could get there in one flight right i mean it's really not the airport it's that we don't have flights that's fair uh we we will see where that goes um there's also you know a quarter of a million dollars potentially going to environmental remediation if they need it and also potential help with whatever sustainability effort sherwin williams might be interested in and help tapping into the proposed microgrid in downtown cleveland so there are always people who complain when public money is given to companies but but if ohio didn't come through with the incentives cities elsewhere would have and we probably would have lost the company 14 million dollars doesn't sound like all that much when you're when you're looking at a company the size of sherwin williams with you know nearly four well they if they top out where they are it's four thousand people we're talking about with decent money but there are other incentives we don't know about uh in addition to the 14 million coming from cleveland in the state yeah so i've zeroed in on the county because that's what i cover but mayor frank jackson has said the county's piece of this puzzle is the smallest between the city, the county, and the state. So the city and the state is really where we're going to see, I think, the big bucks coming through, and we don't have details on on what that looks like yet. The package the region offered to get Amazon's second headquarters here was a lot more than what Sherwin-Williams appears to be getting. Has anyone commented on that? Yeah, not really. Uh, The package was just introduced to council this week, though, so we'll see if things get discussed in committee hearings over the coming weeks. Well, the thing that made the Amazon deal stick out, it was going to be the first time ever that Cleveland was going to take the increase in the income taxes from the, the extra employment and give it back, and that had never happened. It was a really bad precedent. Uh, But once you made that offer, I would imagine Sherwin-Williams took notice of that, and it'll be interesting to see if we get that from the city. All right, short list for you to go over today, Courtney. Thanks for your time. No problem. Have a good one. In a moment, we'll talk with chief politics writer Seth Richardson about the suddenly interesting battle for the Democratic nomination for president. It's this week in the CLE. It's been ages, Seth. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me on. All right. Before we get to the politics, we had an earlier conversation in this podcast (laughs) in which we heard you're going to run a dictatorship in the event of a pandemic, letting your colleagues join you in your compound if they have skills that you find useful. Do tell. Well, so I believe, okay, the apocalypse is certainly an every person for themselves situation, right? And I am perfectly happy to open, you know, my home and uh, my compound, whatever you want to call it. 
I don't really know the zoning laws on building a bunker in the city of Cleveland. I'm going to have to look it up eventually. But, yeah, if you have skills to trade, then, of course, I will accept you <laughs> into my clan. But that's Journalism why, skills not applicable. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, hey, don't get me wrong. I love journalism and all that. I just don't know that it translates to a kind of worldwide apocalypse. So that's why, you know, I've been acquiring skills over my life, you know, woodworking, soap making, those kinds of things. Okay, good to know. Uh, the world will know now that in the event You're of the apocalypse— Seth is gathering. I, I should. I should do interviews and you know, like, yeah, yeah. There's like a cut list. There's a Mendoza like line for the apocalypse. This could be a really interesting podcast. <laughs> Seth's apocalypse application. Yeah, there we go. All right, let's cut to it. Who's going to be the Democratic nominee for president? I feel like if I knew that, I'd just go buy a Powerball ticket. Um, yeah, I mean, right now it looks, you know, like. I, I guess you've kind of got a. Would, would you buy a Powerball ticket because you're so depressed by who it is and no, you're looking for no, a state? No, because I'm clairvoyant. Yeah. Yeah. you know, if okay. I'm that clairvoyant, I'd you know have <laughs> rather have the, the millions of dollars. Uh, I don't know. I I honestly don't know. It's it's kind of confusing right now. I think there's certainly uh, you know Bernie Sanders is looking strong right now, but they're it's it's still pretty wide open. I would say. All right, we're six weeks from the Ohio primary. This has become interesting. Bernie came in first in Iowa, New Hampshire. Amy Klobuchar has a surprising third-place finish. Joe Biden, who for a long time everybody thought would be automatic, is fading fast. And Michael Bloomberg, as you reported, is spending a whole lot of money in Ohio. If I'm a Democrat in Ohio, as this thing is coming closer, because I want to be relevant. I want my vote to count. I don't want to go for a loser what should I be paying attention to to figure out where my vote can be most useful? Well, I guess it sort of depends how you want to use your vote in that kind of scenario, right? Do you want to vote for who's most likely to win or do you want to vote, you know, your conscience and all that? Well, well, but but just, you know, if, if Yang was still in it mm. and I voted for him and he dropped out a week later, mm. I feel like, boy, what a waste of my vote. So so I'm a high voter. This is the scenario. Yeah. I'm giving you a scenario. Yeah. I'm an Ohio voter. I'm, not, I'm, I'm an independent, so I don't vote in the Democratic Party. Mm. But say I'm a Democratic voting in the primary, I want my vote to count. So so what should I be paying attention to so I can figure out which of the candidates that are legitimate I can vote for? I don't want to vote yeah. for somebody that'll be out in a week. So clearly the two things to watch for right now are Nevada, South Carolina, right? Because you had the whole, um, the, the nice word would be fiasco in Iowa that kind of, you know, uh, screwed up the momentum, the quote-unquote momentum that's supposed to come out of that. You had New Hampshire after that. You've got a tie between uh, Bernie Sanders and Pete Buttigieg. So I do think Nevada and South Carolina, where for the first time you're going to have um, a higher proportion of non-white voters voting for the first time, is going to give a real sense of uh, you know viability of these candidates, right? If, uh, if Klobuchar does well in these states, hey, okay, maybe she does have a chance. If Bernie just kind of blows it out of the park, then hey, you know, he's looking like the odds-on favorite. Same with Buttigieg. Um, you know, Biden could really kind of resurrect his campaign a little bit if he does somehow take Nevada and South Carolina. Okay, so let's go candidate by candidate. Bernie Sanders, does he have momentum or Iowa and New Hampshire just weird places out of touch with the rest of America? I think he's got real momentum. I think he's probably the odds-on favorite right now. Um, I think he's going to probably do pretty well in Nevada. You know, you guys tired me from Nevada. He did very well out there last time. Um, seeing some of the reports that there's kind of a concerted effort to, I think, depress his support out there amongst some of the, like, some of the more powerful unions. But yeah, he clearly has uh, momentum. And I mean, you know, the thing that, like, at the end of the day, the thing to remember is that 
we talk about momentum, we talk about shifts and all this stuff, but the name of the game is collecting delegates. And mm -hmm. if you win, you collect delegates. Now, right now, he's actually slightly behind Pete Buttigieg and delegates, I believe. But, you know, if you keep winning races, you win the nomination. So, okay. So, Mayor Pete, do we think he's got a real shot? Uh, he, the litmus test for him is certainly like these up, two upcoming states, right? Iowa and New Hampshire very white, older populations, we know that they're not representative of the Democratic Party as a whole. Mm. So if he comes away looking, you know, with a respectable finish in those two states, enters into Super Tuesday, has a really strong uh, Super Tuesday finish, which includes, you know, California, New York, Texas, a lot of those bigger states, then yeah, he's certainly a, vi um, a viable option for the nomination. All right, talk about Amy. Is she the possible candidate that the Democrats have been hoping for, the fresh face to emerge with all the baggage who can galvanize the party? She she occupies a really interesting space to me because uh, politically speaking, she should be in that Joe Biden lane, right? She's kind of the uh, the moderate Democrat, so to speak. And she's got the Midwest credentials, you know, being from Minnesota and whatnot. She's also, uh, you know, she's a woman who that that's going to, you know, be beneficial, especially in a Democratic primary. The thing is, I don't know that her message, uh, I, I don't know how much her message is catching on outside of that kind of constituency. Um, so again, a real test for her in Nevada. If she can, And the other thing is, she doesn't have as much money as the other candidates. So does she have enough money to really play in the long term? Um, if she can really capitalize off of a strong New Hampshire showing and raise a bunch of money and, hey, all of a sudden she's got organizations that she can build out in some of these other states, yeah, potentially. All right, speaking of money, there's Michael Bloomberg. He's loaded and he's ready to spend, and he has shown he will go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Trump. Can he galvanize the party? Potentially. The I feel like Michael Bloomberg's best chances are if there is, if Bernie Sanders sweeps the first four states, I think he's really pretty clearly the odds-on favorite for the nomination. If there starts being some fractures in the party and, say, Amy Klobuchar wins a state or Elizabeth Warren or Joe Biden or whatever, and these states start splitting up, that's when Michael Bloomberg's strategy really comes into play. Because he's been dropping, I think the last—I know it's over $100 million. I think he actually decided he was going to double that to more than $200 million. It might even be upwards of $300 million now. He's just buying oh, all the ad time Lord. possible. And, I mean, you know, like here, he, he got 91 paid staffers in the state. That is a huge organization, and we're—you know, we don't vote until the third Tuesday in March. There's still two kind of super Tuesdays before us. He's also spending a ton of money in Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, some of these other states. So his strategy, I think, really relies on the, going into Super Tuesday. There's sort of being um, this fracture in the party and people, you know, being very hesitant about, oh, well, you know, if it's Bernie, can Bernie win? Or if it's Pete, can Pete win? And, you know, Joe looks weak, and I don't know if Amy's got it. And that's when he really, like, his uh, plan really comes into play because, you know, if he cleans up on Super Tuesday, then, yeah, uh, very clearly he can, you know, win the nomination. No question. Okay, what about Elizabeth Warren? Yeah, she's interesting right now. <laughs> because I, you know, I, I know some people on her campaign, and they're very smart people. And they know I, I, they know what they're doing, but for some reason it didn't work. And I, I think it really started to tank pretty badly after the story came out that, uh, you know, about the dinner with Bernie and, um, you know, saying Bernie said that a woman couldn't be president. And I, I think voters just, I don't, I don't think they bought it or they don't believe it, whether it's true or not, doesn't really matter in the end. Right. Mm. Um, as far as it goes with Perception, voters. Yeah. yeah. And you know, I thought she was going to do better in Iowa than she did, and she didn't do very well. Her not performing very well in New Hampshire is 
very telling because she, you know, she's from Massachusetts, from right next door. Um, I think she's going to do better in Nevada. I do. Um, part of the reason is I think she's got some shadow backing from some power players out there. Whether that actually translates into success is kind of key. If she doesn't, I mean, if she doesn't come away with one of these first four states, I don't, I don't really see a path for her. Honestly. Okay. And then Joe Biden. Yeah. He's, he's the other interesting one, right? He just, I, it's it's amazing to think that if Joe Biden had just stayed at home and not done anything, he might be in a better position to win the nomination <laughs> than he is right now. Um, I, it's it's getting harder and harder to see a way that he wins, yeah. honestly. I mean, a big showing in South Carolina would be fantastic for him. He does have some union support, too, so, you know, Nevada could be in play there. And, I mean— but he's just not energizing anybody. Yeah, it's it. The, well, that's that's the thing, right? Everybody thought, oh, Joe Biden the savior, and then you know everybody everybody talks about electability with Joe Biden. I don't really like the term electability personally because electability realistically just means you can win elections, right? And most of these people have won elections before. They've shown you can win elections before. But to kind of put it on its flip side, there, you know, who's lost the most presidential elections in this race? Well, it's Joe Biden. So I, I don't know. It's it, it's hard to it's really getting harder to see any kind of path to victory for him. So what will the smart Democratic candidate be doing in Ohio? Is the Bloomberg strategy getting all those people on the ground the winning strategy? Is it more blast the television? What's the message that's going to work in Ohio? I think Bloomberg is uh, well. I think Bloomberg has the best strategy for Ohio right now because he really seems to have kind of the only strategy. You know, <laughs> everybody because the Democratic Party had so many candidates. I mean, we just got down to I think we're down to seven, only seven now, right? Which is still quite a which, few. Which one didn't we mention? Uh, huh? We didn't mention one. Which one? Tom Steyer. Oh, oh, right, yeah. right. Um, we could just move on. <laughs> um, no, I, I think Bloomberg. It, it's such an intriguing strategy going with this, hey, you know, everybody is front-loading everything that they're doing right now. So they're expending time, they're expending energy on these states, and they're leaving votes essentially on the table. Whereas in the past, you can kind of have a more robust organization. You can dot whatever you need to wherever you need to in certain states. So I do think that from just a plain strategic standpoint, yeah, of course he's playing it right. He's got paid staff on the ground. He's got 12 offices. He's got offices in places like, uh, you know, he's got Akron. He's got two in Cleveland. He's got... Uh, uh, anyway, he's got them all over the state and having that kind of presence there is important. And, you know, having the staff to coordinate volunteers, the more doors you can knock on, the more, you know, people vote for the names that they know. Right. Uh, so having an organization here is key. As far as messaging goes, um, I think one of the smarter things he's doing is kind of running this general election campaign against Trump. Right. And, where Joe Biden has really sort of slipped in his messaging. He said, oh, I'm the guy who can beat Trump. But then didn't really give you any, like, you know, there was no kind of policy to back it up. And voters still want policy, whereas Bloomberg is out there kind of talking about, you know, the economy, climate change, gun violence, those sorts of things. Uh, so I do think that's smart. Well, but the thing is, you just mentioned this, like the guy who can beat Trump, right? And so voters aren't necessarily going to just vote based on who they like mm -hmm. best, but who they think has a better shot in the general election. And I mean, you oversaw for months the flyover. You've been looking at all of these states that went for Trump after going for Obama. Do you think that these are, are different 
um, these states and and the blue collar workers here what they're looking for. Maybe they don't want a Bernie Sanders. They want somebody who's less environmentally concerned or, you know, who's less of a who's more moderate. I mean, do you feel like we're different here? I do think there are some differences, but um, it, it, it's sort of hard to pinpoint, right? Because you've got this really like cataclysmic sort of shift in politics that happened in 2016 mm-hmm. where, you know, it, it's hard to tell. Well, OK, does the Youngstown blue collar worker who decided to go for Trump actually stick it out there or do they get somebody who gives more of a pro-union message, right? Puts the puts the labor force out front mm-hmm. and center and, and everything else kind of becomes secondary. Um, I don't necessarily think that the... I don't know that we have more conservative Democrats, so to speak, here in the state. Um, I think it's a matter of where the, the people on, you know, on the spectrum are going. And clearly they've been going to the Republican Party because mm-hmm. the Republicans have been cleaning house here for years. Um, but you look at a state, you know, look, I mean, the state that we're kind of compared to probably the most is probably Michigan, right? Okay. And you look at kind of the Democrats who are winning there. Uh, Gretchen Whitmer won the governor's race there last year. She's incredibly liberal. Okay. Uh, Bernie Sanders won the primary there in 2016, incredibly liberal. So it's, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, and I, to go back to what Chris said, you know, it is about who the Democrats think will win. Do the Democrats see that, okay, we tried Hillary Clinton in 2016 because we thought she had the best chance does maybe Bernie get that chance now because of like, well, we tried the centrist thing. It didn't work. Let, you know, let's do the progressive thing. Okay. Thank you, Seth. I feel like we're going to see you a good bit on this podcast this year. And uh, Chris tells me about to fire up your politics podcast after a hiatus. Yeah, I think we've got some uh, cool things in the works. So uh, stay tuned for that. Uh, well, I'm still discussing with him if we're going to, you know, record from my bunker or what. I was going to but... say politics and apocalypse. <laughs> Next up, Hannah Drown to talk about a video that she and John Panna put together on Cleveland's five most romantic restaurants. Yes, Friday is Valentine's Day, but this video is good all year round. It's This Week in the CLE. Welcome to the podcast, Hannah Drown. Hi, Laura. So you and John Panna, our talented videographer, worked together on a brand new video about our five most romantic restaurants in Cleveland. It's pretty special. So how did you guys choose? So John went to the entertainment team to discuss putting together new restaurant videos. And with Valentine's Day coming up, it made sense to do a video about romantic restaurants. So they put their heads together and came up with their five favorites. John would be here, but he's losing his voice. You wouldn't be able to hear him. Uh, but you can speak for him. Beyond the obvious, providing details about the five most romantic restaurants, what were you pr- what were you trying to do here? Is it that you're trying to help stoke some fire for people by showing them what's possible in romantic dining? The thing is, Cleveland has such a massive restaurant scene, so we're always excited to find new ways to celebrate it. And you're exactly correct. We wanted to show people what's possible. I think that sometimes, especially with date nights, people have their go-to choices, and there's nothing wrong with tradition, but with so much out there, why don't you discover something new? I was actually pretty proud that I have been to four of these spots, but I think only two on dates with my husband. Um, <laughs> not like Whoa. dates on other ones. Whoa. It was like, like, you know, he can hear this. TMI, <laughs> TMI, with other people. They were not dates. They were like lunches, right? Romantic lunches. Okay. No. <laughs> All right, fine. Of the five, do you have a favorite? And does John? So John's favorite was Edwin's, especially the opportunity to sit by the fireplace. He was telling me after we got the video complete that he can't wait to go back and try the burger because our resident expert, Mark Bona, said it's the best burger he has ever had. I have had the burger. It is cooked 
table side. It's, right. It's I like a $35 burger. It's to die for. But it, it sounds really like it's worth good. it. See, yeah. Oh, yeah, okay. Well, and so speaking of which, I don't eat red meat. I, I Meat-wise, I really only eat poultry and fish. So I would say my favorite would have to be Pure W just because of the mm. excellent fish selection. And uh, the view. And you can't beat the view. I'd say my other one is probably La Albatro. It's such a gem. And I love I'm a West Sider, and I'm willing to cross the Cuyahoga for it. So that probably says something. <laughs> it feels like such a special occasion. It does. It does. Are all these expensive? If people go, should they think of it as this big special occasion? Or can people eat there without breaking? in the bank i mean some are more expensive than others but look don't plan on having a meal at any of these for a budget-friendly meal of them flying figs probably the most reasonable uh, and they do offer special pricing so on monday nights you can do a 30 dollar meal that's an appetizer a main course and a dessert and one of the most interesting parts about that is it's not pre-selected you know the cheaper menu items on there you can pick any of those items from the entire menu oh, wow. uh, you have all of that at your disposal uh, the other one pure w they have an awesome happy hour they do have an awesome happy hour i mean the the food that you can get there ranges from less than five dollars to as high as fourteen dollars so you have the option with these they're nice restaurants but they do make it a little bit more affordable for others Given that these are special places, I imagine people might be out of luck if they tried to make a last-minute reservation for Valentine's Day. It's on Friday night, after all. But maybe they could get in on Saturday, Sunday for a belated Valentine's Day treat. The rest of the year, are these hard to get into? So any of the restaurants should be fairly easy to get in on a weeknight. But once the weekend hits, a reservation is probably a good idea, regardless if it's a special occasion or not. The problem is they're all small to medium-sized restaurants, so there's not a lot of space. If you're hoping to, to wing it and not have a reservation, you might want to go in a warm weather month when the patios are open because that significantly increases the space. Washington Place Bistro told John that when the patios open, it actually doubles their capacity. So it does wow. make a, a big difference. But I would say if you have your heart set on going there, take the few seconds to call it and make a reservation. All right. Well, thanks, Hannah. People can watch the video on Cleveland.com and it's worth the time. It's, it's, it's funny. Uh, thank you so much. Good to have you back in the co-host chair, Laura. What story is your favorite this week? I think Andrew Tobias's story on the dark money gun reform group. I find that fascinating and just a little bit hopeful. You know, I'm a coronavirus news junkie. But <laughs> I, I do know that. <laughs> but my favorite story this week is the county council doing right by the low-paid workers. We talk a lot about how screwed up county government is, and it is. But this was a wonderful gesture to treat people right who don't make much money. It's humane, and it's not that much money out of the county's $1.5 billion budget. Of course, it was good to get Seth back in the studio to talk some politics. He's going to have a fun year, the Democratic battle, and then the general election. So much riding on it, and Trump's antics know no bounds. Seth has such a smart take on politics. I always learn something talking to him, and I feel like we are in for a wild ride for the next couple of weeks. Yeah, he's going to end up being on as regularly as Courtney or Jane. Jane, yeah. All right, that's a wrap. Thanks to Jane, Chris, Mary, Courtney, Seth, and Hannah. Thank you, Laura, for coming back from Florida. And thank you all for listening. This Week in the CLE is published Thursdays. We have a shorter bonus episode on Saturdays to ask the lingering questions from the week's news. I'm Chris Quinn. We'll be back next week. 